Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. This one is about trust. The idea came from a listener, Joanne, which isn't her real name, and I think it's an excellent one. Although Joanne wrote in with her particular scenario, which is that her husband had an affair, trust is the foundation of all our relationships, and, as we'll see, how much we were able to trust those who surrounded us growing up can impact on how and if we are able to trust later on. The specialist today is Dr. Stephen Blumenthal from the Intimacy episode in series two, which is still available and makes a good companion piece to this one. Stephen is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst who is registered with the British Psychoanalytic Council. He has over 30 years experience. We look at what trust is, how it's achieved and how it's lost. Can we bounce back from a betrayal of trust? Guess what? Being able to talk about it is key to the process. If you'd like to listen to this podcast ad-free and before it goes on general release, please consider becoming a patron from just £3 a month or you can give a one-off donation via ACAST supporter. Both links will be in the episode description. Hello Stephen and welcome back for another episode for series five. We're going to be talking about trust in all its forms and I thought it would be useful to start with what is trust and how would you define it? Well first of all I feel very privileged to be asked back and I think that says something about a kind of trusting context that very you true. create. Thank Annalisa. you. I would begin by saying that trust comes from really a reliable an affectionate relationship, which develops over time. I think history is very important in it because you can't just get trust straight away. It takes time to develop. And as you develop in trust, you come to realize that the things are just as we thought they were. So there's an affirmation of how we see the world. And there has to be repeated evidence that that is the case of sincerity and authenticity. I think of trust as being connected with safety, actually. But it's not just safety. Somebody called Paul Gilbert makes this really important distinction between safeness and safety. Safety comes from where there's an elimination of a threat. So, for example, a dictatorship can be safe, but as long as you follow the rules or mm -hmm. some kind of 
hierarchy, an organization or a family might be safe. But if you step out of line, you get that's not a trusting environment, it's safe. But safeness is something completely different. It comes from strong, affectionate bonds where there's affiliative connections, where there's a good, secure, connected base. And that really relates to the whole area of attachment. Attachment is kind of at the basis of everything. Attachment is really important in thinking about trust. A good example would be like where a child, a young child, might be going to sleep and they might say to their parent, there's a monster in the cupboard. And then the sort of stressed parent would open the cupboard and say, don't be so silly, it's not there. That's a kind of safety response, Mm -hmm. right? And then the child might say, but it's only there when you leave the room. And then safeness is something quite different because it's recognizing that the attachment relationship is really important. And the parent might then sit with the child and soothe the child and ask the child, about the shape of this monster, which is recognized to be in the mind. And that's really the basis of the kind of safeness that leads to a trusting relationship. It sounds like if you can acknowledge somebody's fear or need for safeness, that gives them safeness or can do? Yes, it's about recognizing and understanding somebody else. It's about having an understanding mind that recognizes your mind and that there's a connection between what's in your mind and what's in the other person's mind. Mm. So an empathetic response in a way. Yes, and even more than empathy, being able to really get into the other person's shoes and recognize the importance of what they need to feel secure. It even has a different physiological basis safeness evokes endorphins and oxytocin whereas Mm -hmm. safety is about getting rid of a threat so it would be about things like adrenaline heart rate as long as the threat isn't there then things are safe but as soon as the threat comes back it's not and that really quite specifically is not a trusting relationship you mentioned a word there, reliable, and I don't know if it's because I've been thinking about doing this episode, but that's a word I've thought of a lot this week, whether somebody is reliable and therefore whether I can trust them. And how important would you say being reliable is in building a relationship, whatever that relationship is, based on trust? Am I correct in thinking you could trust somebody in certain things, but not in others? So my mum was always at school to pick me mm. up from primary. Yes. I never thought about it, totally took it for granted. She was always there. Mm. So I totally trusted her, but I might not have trusted her in other things. You know, if mm. we went out shopping, mm. she always used to say, we've got one just like it at home. And I soon learned mm. that that wasn't actually true. Yes. So how does that work? How can you trust somebody in one aspect, but not in another? It has to be an authentic demonstration of whatever it is. So in the case of your mother picking you up from school every day, there was an authenticity to her gesture of Mm -hmm. picking you up. There was a reliable rhythm there. And I think authenticity is a really important point over there because trust actually has a dark side too, in the sense that it can be exploited by somebody who is inauthentic with it. So they might 
present themselves as being understanding of a, and reflecting a particular aspect of your mind. For example, with some of the more troubled people that I work with, they might actually have an inconsistent sense of themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Or they might have negative ideas about themselves. And some people are really rather good at picking up on those negativities and then reflecting that back. So that what develops there is a reliable negative experience of trust so that you can land up trusting the wrong person. Can you give me an example? I think fundamentalism is a very good example of this because people who might not have resources, somebody comes along and says, I can put your world right by giving you exactly what you need. And then people place their trust in that person or that ideology and will then follow that person. And that may land up in some kind of state of tyranny. And that can also happen on an individual basis where somebody, say, who's depressed or very vulnerable. In the case of somebody who might have suffered some kind of trauma in childhood or at some point in their early lives, and somebody offers them a kind of false hope that they will rescue them from that, but instead it leads them into a kind of tyrannous relationship to trust somebody who's actually untrustworthy. Mm. I'm trying to get my head around that because then they did trust, but they weren't right to trust. Exactly. Yes. So how do we know the difference? We don't. I mean, how important is instinct, do you think, in trusting someone? There is instinct, but instinct is so overlaid by one's early experiences. So the ability to trust, the capacity to trust and trust the right people almost always comes from having had a secure situation in your early life. Now, of course, some people have not had that kind of security in their early lives and they learn not to trust. And of course, resilience is something about being able to trust your instinct for something good, even though you might have had something bad. Mm. So it goes back to what you were saying about some people, if I got this right, have an inconsistent view of themselves. Mm. And I'm guessing if they've had a non-secure attachment, they might not be sure in simple terms who they are. I know it took me a long time to learn to trust my instincts. Mm. I mean, my therapist used to say that I'd reason away my feelings. Yes. And I think because growing up, I mean, my parents didn't mean this badly, but because I was quite dramatic, they'd say, what a load of rubbish (laughs) or what a load of lies. They weren't. They were just what I'd seen or my interpretation. And it's taken me quite a long time to actually really trust myself. I Mm. mean, that's a whole different thing, really, is can you trust others if you don't trust yourself? This is exactly the thing, is that when you have been brought up with a lack of trust, It's not only trusting others, but it's through the lens of the other that you land up trusting yourself, your own perceptions, and develop a coherent view of yourself and others as well. Some of the people that I work with, for example, they don't trust themselves or don't trust their own perceptions. And that can be a really rather difficult situation in which somebody can feel rather lost if you don't have trust. Well, I certainly know that, you know, since I've become a grown-up and had lots of therapy and I do trust myself, I feel much safer. I feel like I'm mm. much more on solid ground. And when I, if I ever momentarily lose that, 
and by momentarily I mean it could be a moment or it could be a few weeks or it depends if I'm going through something I do feel quite lost I think I understand a little bit of that feeling So it seems to me that we get trust by a secure attachment growing up, knowing who we are, which comes from having ourselves reflected back in a positive way, mm. having interactions that are positive and, and reliable and somebody doing something consistently. But how then can we lose trust? The idea for this episode was from a listener called Joanne. She specifically wanted to know how to carry on being married once her partner had an affair so that's a very particular mm. kind of trust she mm. thought he was one kind of person mm. and he did something she didn't expect so she's mm. lost that trust but how else can we lose trust with people well i think that's a very good example of how you lose trust because joanne's husband who she thought was one way behaved in a way which was totally contrary to that and betrayed her trust and for it obviously depends on your early experiences, the extent to which you can come back from a betrayal like that. It may be that you can't. How could early experiences determine how you cope with that? Can you give me some examples? I think when you're talking about trust, what, one of the theoreticians that comes to mind is Eric Erickson, who had eight stages of psychosocial development in life. And the very first stage of that is basic trust versus mistrust. And that is in the period of life when you're zero to 18 months. And there's something quite important about his identifying that being a really crucial time for the development of trust, because it's in that very early primary relationship Trust then is something that's elementary and really body-based. It's visceral. It's from that very first interaction which anchors us in the world. There's a series of experiments called the still face experiment where a mother or caregiver is asked from as young as eight weeks old. The mother goes completely blank for a period of about 90 seconds or two mm -hmm. minutes. And what you see there is the baby completely losing its posture, really struggling to come back from that. With a mother where there's a security of attachment, even as young as that, there's a rapid coming back from that. There's an overcoming of that rupture, and there's a, quite a dramatic repair at that point. In cases where they've done that study with mothers who have got quite severe psychopathology, the babies actually really struggle to come back from that. And there's much more freezing. These are the babies that will be quite vulnerable later on and may struggle in later life to trust or maybe develop trust in the wrong people, in people who are not trustworthy. Joanne probably doesn't know how secure her attachment was in the first 18 months, like a lot yes. of us. I mean, it sounds yes. like if you have a secure attachment, it makes you psychologically bouncy. <laughs> you can mm. bounce back from things. But most of us don't know. And I have to say, well, I think it's fascinating. But whenever I hear anything about early attachment, I think, well, I don't know about mine. But then I also think 
I bet I did everything wrong <laughs> and it mm-hmm. makes me feel really bit guilty. So if anyone's listening and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I'm a parent. I don't know how great I was in those first 18 months or whatever. I mean, what can you do about it? That's a very important point that I would want to convey to the listeners is that no parenting is perfect and you have to have imperfection. It's a bit like building muscle. You have to tear it slightly in order to build it and no situation is ideal and in fact we learn from those experiences which were non-ideal that's how we develop resilience we were talking about joanne and she asked specifically how to be married to someone you don't trust and her husband had an affair using her as an example i'm sure lots of people have had examples of people they love betraying their trust But I mean, is there a way back from that when somebody's done stuff like that? It sounds like you're saying the way back might depend on early experiences. It depends on early experiences, but it also importantly depends on other aspects of the relationship. In the same way that you described your mother as being reliably at the school gate, but reliable also telling you a mistruth at the shops. I suppose it depends on so many other factors in the relationship, whether there's a demonstration of contrition. Is it possible to discuss these things and whether Joanne could come to an understanding of why he did what he did and where she could re-find the trust that was betrayed? It would depend on so many different factors. One of the troubles with affairs which are discovered and trying to re-establish trust is that the partner of the person who's had the affair might be terribly angry and then the person who had the affair then feels terribly guilty and doesn't want to hear anything about it so shuts Mm. down the anger and then what can really happen in a couple relationship is that it can get into a kind of a gratuitous cycle in which there's a sort of anger which is never properly satiated. And I think the person who has had the affair has to be able to listen to the person who has suffered the transgression in order to make that kind of recovery. I suppose the thing is about trust is that it's not something that you just arrive at trust immediately. It's something that is really achieved over a long period of time through Mm -hmm. countless examples of actually actions which confirm a particular view of the world and it is sometimes very difficult to come back from that. Well I can imagine also that the person who's had the affair taking that as the example might think but I've done all these good things and then they've done this not so great thing Mm. but then just thinks that all the other stuff should be taken into account when actually what they don't understand is that they've changed the other person's view of the world, Mm. view of them And so it must be quite hard to kind of come back from. I think you're absolutely right about it becomes almost like saint and sinner and it kind of doesn't matter what the sinner does because they've done this and Mm. one person takes more high ground. So what would be the answer there? Because Joanne's second question was any tips to stop thinking about the hurt caused by an unfaithful partner? And my first thought, but I could be wrong, is actually... Don't try and stop thinking about it because I think running away from things, running away from feelings never works. What do you think? No, it it doesn't. There are two ways of thinking, though. There's one which is 
engaging with the problem and really leaning into it. And there's another which is much more gratuitous and circular, where you just find yourself ruminating over and over again about something. And it really needs to be tested out with your partner. It can't be something that you just retain in your head all the time and suffer with. What sometimes happens in a partnership is that the person who's actually had the affair might feel terribly ashamed. And then every time it's brought up, it's like, no, stop talking about that. I don't want to hear about that anymore. And then that just compounds the problem and just leads into this kind of endless cycle. So Joanne would really need to re-find the trust in her partner and feel that actually it's got to be achieved over a long period of time. I would definitely not say stop thinking about it because it has to be thought about it. It has to be processed. Because her next question was, is it worth talking about the affair? She says that her husband completely shuts down and looks angry, which is what you were saying. Mm. But it sounds like there's ways of thinking and there's ways of talking if it's constructive and kind of healing but if it's just circular and nobody gets anywhere. But that is often the way when trust has been lost, it goes. Because, you know, that's why (laughs) people like you and your colleagues exist. A lot of people Mm. have trouble communicating. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. So, I mean, moving away from the affair, but still talking about trust, if somebody has betrayed your trust or you have betrayed Mm. someone's trust, how do you even start going about it? It sounds like you're saying it's quite a long-term project. It's a long-term project, exactly. And it has to be sort of built very gradually because that's how trust is established in the first place, sort of brick by brick. And when the building has collapsed, it might be the case that you have to demolish the building and that the relationship simply won't work. Or it might be possible to rebuild the relationship brick by brick again. And I really do feel for Joanne because a partner who denies her reality, that can become a really problematic situation. There are plenty of relationships which are not based on a trusting connection between two people. Mm. You're just two people in a home together, lying side by side, going to sleep together, sitting side by side, you know, watching television, just living in parallel. And for a trusting relationship, there has to be 
a real engagement. You have to be able to feel understood, loved, affirmed, cared for, validated by your partner. And there's a lot of scientific evidence that such relationships, good, strong, trusting bonds, are absolutely vital for longevity, for both physical and mental health. The Harvard Adult Development Study actually has followed people from childhood. From 1938, it's been going over 80 years, following up several generations over that period. And the thing that comes out, which is the most important thing for happiness, for physical health, for longevity and mental health, is actually quality of relationships. And the important word there is quality, because you can be lonely in a crowd, you can be lonely mm -hmm. in a partnership. A non-trusting relationship is a terribly lonely place to be. And loneliness is actually apparently as toxic for you as smoking in terms of longevity. A good relationship at age 50 is twice as predictive of health at 80 as cholesterol. So relationships, good quality, trusting relationships are absolutely vital for our well-being. And do you have to trust your partner completely, do you think? Because... I can't imagine trusting anybody completely in every aspect of my life. Does that say something terrible about me? Not at all, Annalisa. I think you're quite right. You can't trust anybody but yourself, really, at the end of the day. I think that's the whole point. There's a lovely poem by Rumi, which is called The Song of the Reed. And it's about when the reed is played, the sound of the reed is the reed's longing to be back in the reed bed from mm -hmm. where he was plucked. And in a way that is a kind of metaphor for ourselves because we can never completely be symbiotic with a, another person. We're always partly alone. But I think that's the thing is that that's what kind of has to be accepted in life is that we can't fully trust anybody, but still we trust. And that's how trust develops. And that's why a secure attachment is terribly important for the development of trust, because you have to trust even though you can't trust, ultimately. And it has to be achieved. It has to be striven for all the time. And it's always just out of reach. A relationship over the long term will always tend towards staleness. It always has to be revitalized. So it's a lifelong process. A relationship takes a lot of work. You can't just rest on your laurels and think that trust is something that will always be there. Because as soon as we do, we're kind of turning a blind eye to the reality of the situation. And I'm guessing also if you don't trust someone in whatever sort of sphere, you're constantly having to be hypervigilant and that's exhausting and physiologically there must be all sorts of things going on in your body that make you like that. Mm. This is the difficulty of, of a relationship in which you don't feel secure is that your sympathetic nervous system is overactive. In other words, you're on high alert. It's not safeness, that's safety. You're mm. trying to ensure safety all the time by trying to eliminate threat. Exactly, physiologically, you're full of adrenaline rather than endorphins. 
And that is ultimately, you know, bad for you. It's physically bad for you. You can see why a trusting relationship is something that can lead to good physical health. Mm. So if someone's listening to this and thinking, gosh, I never really thought about it that much because there's obviously transgressions such as Joanne's husband's affair that are obvious betrayals of trust. But how mm. do you know if you have trust in a relationship in a sort of, let's call it everyday relationship? It could be with a loved one, like a partner. It could be with a parent. It could be with colleagues. How do you know if you trust someone? I think the relationship has to be firstly a benign one so that there isn't something abusive going on, so that you don't feel like you're being gaslighted, and that there's a reliability to the relationship. There's marriage, let's say, between the sense that you have of yourself and the sense that you have of what you think the other person thinks about you. Mm -hmm. So that there's a, a consistency between how you feel you're perceived by the other person and how you perceive yourself, where you feel reliably understood, cared for, loved. Mm -hmm. Now that is an ideal, of course, because that's never going to be a permanent situation. There's always going to be a betrayal of trust. You're always going to be let down by your partner. And this again is where the security of one's attachment is terribly important because there's a natural cycle of a rupture and a repair mm -hmm. in a relationship. That's just one of the things that has to be in a long-term relationship. And it's how you negotiate those ruptures in the relationship and then the repair that follows. And that there shouldn't be too many of them as well because if the relationship is governed by too many ruptures, then that is a sign of a unhealthy relationship, should we say. If you find that one partner is terribly contemptuous of the other, that is a sure sign that that relationship is not a relationship of trust. That's more like a kind of hierarchical relationship of power and control rather than a kind of horizontal relationship which is more democratic where there's more engagement a to and fro where different people can experience a sense of authority within the relationship trust obviously extends beyond the relationship sphere into everything that we do it's a fundamental aspect of human society so that organizations that are very hierarchical and vertically orientated between a boss and a worker. In those situations, a more democratic organization in which the bonds that keep people together are not about safety, but about safeness, are terribly important. Compassionate leadership is something that is really vital for an energetic organization. Something that is too hierarchical and dictatorial inevitably tilts towards tyranny. Mm. Well, it's a bit like when something goes wrong, you should be able to explain what happened and not fear mm. draconian punishment because that's how we can move on and, and learn to trust and learn from the mistake. And I know that we talked in the intimacy episode about it's vital to be able to repair and rupture. And you mm. mentioned about a relationship not having too many ruptures, but also a relationship 
being able to repair the rupture healthily. How do you repair a rupture in a healthy way? Yes, again, going back to Joanne, it's about the capacity of the couple to be able to have an honest, open dialogue in which vulnerability can be cared for and looked after rather than responded to with anger and hostility. So there has to be some dynamic discussion and interaction. The partner who transgressed has to be able to take responsibility, the struggles of the partner who's been mm. on the receiving end of the of the transgression. It's difficult for a couple to do that on their own without somebody present, like a couple therapist, who can facilitate that discussion in a safe way. And that, I suppose, leads to the question of therapy as a whole, you might say. Therapy is a place in which trust can be recovered or established in somebody who has experienced trauma, which has led to a difficulty with trust. How do you help to rebuild trust in the therapy room? First of all, you have to be with a therapist who you trust. But how do you know that? How do you know that? Yeah, That's I mean, a very good question because, you see, that takes time to establish. You can't just establish it overnight. And I think, again, you've got to trust your instinct. Many people can get trapped in a therapy where they don't trust their therapist, but they continue regardless. A trusting relationship is not a relationship in which you just get mirrored back the view that you have of yourself. Mm. It's the same as an intimate relationship. It's not just about, you know, standing before a mirror of yourself. The other person also has to be able to challenge you and say to you, I have a different view of how things are here. I propose this to you. Safeness is something that we all know when we're in it, when we feel secure in that relationship and held and contained by that relationship. Mm, I mean, I've had quite a bit of therapy and I had it when I was just out of my teens. And apart from one therapist, I always immediately, in fact, I took it for granted that I trusted them. Now I think about it, I never thought about not trusting them, which means I must have known what trust felt like. But I think mm. the biggest thing for me is that I trusted them with me and my problems. I knew they would mm. listen. I knew they wouldn't become hysterical. And I knew they wouldn't make it about them. Yes, there has to be consistency and it has to be safe to bring yeah. those really difficult sides of yourself which feel really vulnerable and tender. It's how your vulnerability and tenderness is really treated that yes, the... will determine whether that person is safe. So really, it seems to me that trust and instinct, if you have the right experience and you mm. trust yourself, are actually quite, really quite important. I mean, everything we're saying, I, the word instinct just keeps jumping out at me. You know, you, yes. we override certain things. So certain things can kind of blindside us a bit. Could be a uniform, yes. could be someone in a position of authority. But when you yes. have that sort of feeling that you don't trust someone, I think that is based on, I don't know, a sort of weird animal instinct. So how could someone like me, who is very untrusting, hmm. learn to trust more? And should I? I think 
a sort of a healthy bit of sort of alertness and a little bit of paranoia is always helpful. There's the but, t-shirt designed for you, Stephen. <laughs> but if that bar is set too high, then we filter out too much and we lose out on relationships which might have been good ones to have. So it's about sort of setting the bar in the right place. How do you know where that place is? Well, that's the million dollar question. If you haven't got a secure attachment or life has, you know, not been kind to you and you're not Mm. trustworthy, how do you know where to set the bar? When we have experienced a situation in early life which has not been one of safeness, a kind of solid, secure base, we then have to ensure that ourselves. And what we tend to do there is to develop a kind of trauma pattern in which we deal with our lack of safety by ensuring that safety ourselves. That might lead in all sorts of ways us establishing relationships which are problematic in one way or another, where we might trust the wrong person, somebody who isn't trustworthy. And I suppose it's taking a long, hard look at ourselves and seeing, well, what are we doing here? Who are we allowing into our lives? We have to be careful who we allow into our sort of inner space. I think it's probably better to be a little bit sort of over-vigilant rather than under-vigilant. Can you trust someone you don't love? But of course the answer must be yes, because you can trust a work colleague. You don't have to love them. Yes, I suppose it depends on the relational bonds. I don't know, if we invest our money in a company, we trust that the company is going to do well. We don't have to love them. But in a close, intimate relationship, love and trust are completely interchangeable. I don't think you can have love without trust. And also, I suppose, what I was saying earlier, you can... You don't have to trust someone completely. It depends on the context. Trust isn't this sort of massive sticker that you can. It has to encompass everything. It can be variable, but I suppose in certain relationships, it becomes more important for it to be sort of consistently there across lots mm. of areas, and certainly the very sort of close ones. I think a child really needs to trust their parents. Yes. I think everything we're saying goes back to that. If you don't have that for whatever reason that can really lead you to have difficulties later on in life. Familial bonds are terribly important in this. Children trusting their parents, parents trusting their children. I suppose that there's a kind of hierarchy of trust. Trusting somebody to be on time is quite different from being able to trust somebody with your heart, with your deepest vulnerabilities, with being able to really share your deepest insecurities with another person and really put yourself in their hands. So Stephen, if someone is listening and thinking, well, I actually, I don't know if I have trust in my relationship, but I don't know if I trust people. What kind of questions can they ask themselves to help them sort of think about who they trust and if they trust? Hmm. I suppose it gets back to the beginning, which is, is this relationship benign affectionate? Do they confirm the view that I have about myself? How do I feel in their presence? Does it make me feel positive to be with this benign person? 
And I think an important point to underline is the issue of time, because trust isn't something that you can just grab hold of in an instant. There has to be a consistency over time that the person actually proves that they're trustworthy. And I would also say that you should really investigate your close affiliative bonds. You should think to yourself, am I turning a blind eye to anything? Well, sometimes when we really want to be loved, we can deny the information that might be contrary to that. There might be such a, a desire to be cared for and validated that we may then land up putting ourselves in the hands of somebody who's untrustworthy, who can't provide the things that we wish for. It's obviously different in every case, but I would advise Joanne or anybody in that kind of situation to be really careful and to be kind to themselves, to actually look at themselves with some compassion rather than self-criticism and to say to themselves, well, I've got a high standard here and I'm not going to drop my standard because my partner gets angry when I raise the question of an affair. I think the ball is really in his court when there is a betrayal of that type. Do you think? I think the ball's in her court. Well, it's in her court to put him under pressure to, mm. uh, to address the issues, absolutely. But w from her point of view, he's got to prove himself, I think is what I'm saying. Mm. And she shouldn't be made to feel guilty or that she's doing the wrong thing by actually asking questions. I think one should have a questioning stance always. And to try and make sure that your situation is a safe one. I think safety really depends on asking the right questions and being prepared and having the confidence to, to ask questions of your partner or your situation. You shouldn't settle. I think that's the thing that I'm trying to say here is that trust is not something that you can settle for. And also, after your trust has been betrayed, you may need to redefine what trust means to you. You may need different things than you did before. Mm. Your standards may be much higher. So thank you, Stephen. That's a really interesting discussion, and I'm sure it's given our listeners lots to think about. Thanks so much to Stephen for another deeply thought-provoking conversation and giving us much to think about. Thanks also to Joanne for the idea. Joanne, I hope this helps you process it in some way. If you'd like to learn more about Stephen and his work, I'll put a link to his website in the episode description. And thank you so much for listening. The producer is Hester Kant. The music is by Toby Donham and our artwork is by Lo Cole. If you'd like to read my column, it appears every Saturday in The Guardian Saturday magazine. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in. So much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free. So if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.